We are continuing a series uh, this morning, second week of this new series called Chosen by God, and we're looking at different uh, women's stories in the Bible. And so last week we began with the Hebrew midwives Zipporah, and Zipporah, Shipporah, and Puah from Exodus chapter 2. Today we're in, obviously, Judges chapters 4 and 5 with the prophet Deborah, and I'm really, really excited about this. So I'll take a moment to just uh, lay this time before God, and then we'll dive right in, okay? Let's pray. God, thank you for your word, and for this is one of the oldest stories in the entire Bible, God. Thanks for how ancient it is, and yet how uh, relevant and profound it is as well. So we, we pray around it. We thank you that we get to open it together on this day, and uh, we, just, we ask your spirit now to be our teacher. Guide our thoughts, guide our hearts, open us to revelation, God, from you, and uh, that we might uh, as we leave today, uh, leave as people who are not only different, but shaped for mission, God, shaped to be people in this world who proclaim and declare grace and hope and truth. Praise in Christ's name. Amen. Well, um, I don't know if you've heard the name Daniel Kahneman. He's a Nobel laureate. He's a crazy smart guy. Like I read a hit a book that I read last year called Thinking Fast and Slow. Anybody read this? Yeah, it's, it's like a big book, and it's really, I mean, he has a TED Talk, and I thought, like, I watched the TED Talk, and I'd understand the book better. This guy's crazy smart, but that's why you win the Nobel Prize. But he suggested in the book toward the end that every person walking the face of planet Earth today is actually a blend of two people, two selves. Uh, and he refers to the experiencing self and the remembering self. So the experiencing self he describes this fast, intuitive, kind of unconscious person, this mode of thinking that operates in the present moment. It's like when you drive to work in the morning, you don't actually think about the direction you go, you just go. And so you're focusing on the sheer quality and, and quantity of experience in your life, living rather than thinking about living. It's the self of like social media, right? And endless summers in Seattle. And he suggests that each moment of the experiencing self lasts about three seconds. And so that means that today you will experience about 20,000 of those moments. And in your lifetime, if you live around 70 years, 500 million experiencing like these moments. And, and so given that, uh, he, he, he says, he asks this question, what happens in those moments? <laughs> and the answer is, it's blunt, very few things. <laughs> like you don't, they just disappear. That's the way, that's why Snapchat is so, I think, a good uh, kind of, metaphor for the experiencing self. It's just, it just, these moments just, just disappear into the ether for most of us. You don't remember them. However, there's this, also this remembering self. And it's slow, it's rational, it's contemplative, it's conscious, it's, and it's telling the story of your experience, okay? How, what you think about it and why you do what you do and how you feel about those things. It's the self of your scrapbooks or your diary. Uh, it's the self of all the notes. Where's Emily McHenry? He put it on her Facebook like all the middle school notes you got, I think she put it on her Facebook yesterday, like all these notes, like, you know, it's like your keepsakes and chess and time capsules. It's a storyteller, the experiencing self is. And uh, what gets remembering, he says, the key to this, what gets remembering the remembering self are the changes in the story, the significant moments, and specifically the intense moments. Um, he has this story... Because your, your brain tends to color the entire story by what happens at the end, the intensity of the end. Tells a story in his TED Talk 
about this lecture he was giving and the Q&A session at the end of the lecture, this guy comes up to him and told him he'd been listening to this symphony, you know, beautiful recording of Beethoven or something like that. And yet there was this dreadful, it was a record, you know, remember records? This dreadful screeching sound at the end. And remember, this guy says this, it ruined the entire thing. And what Kahneman says is it actually didn't ruin the entire thing, it ruined the experience of it. Because he had 20 minutes of beautiful music and a moment of screeching. Uh, and, and that's kind of a metaphor for what happens in our lives. And the, the relevance of his insights and how they apply to our lives is this, that we can often feel very different about our lives while we're living them than actually uh, when we look back on them. Like, for example, declining health at the end of life can distort your perception or memory of the entire arc of your life. Or losing your wallet at the end of a vacation can ruin the entire vacation. You'll forget all the good moments. Or a divorce can be like the screeching at the end of a symphony. It can ruin all the peaks, all the joys in a, in a beautiful marriage. It doesn't matter how long that marriage was. Um, that critical remark in the, in the office, uh, the dreadful epic failure in your life. Well, you just put yourself in the story. We lose sight of the larger context so often because of these, these peaks, these moments. And uh, so the advice of M.J. Ryan, who's a well-known kind of life coach, change expert, she says this. I think this is really impertinent for us. We need to learn to ask in any situation, this is her words, where things have gone kerflui. <laughs> and then she says, what's right with this wrong? What's right with this wrong? Which is, is, is this. We, we, we need to learn to not overlook or dismiss what went wrong in any moment. We need to, we need to show up deal with the issue that's presenting itself when it arrives. But we also must not lose sight of the big picture uh, in the process, like especially when it comes to remembering the good, the wonderful, the things that can nurture us and, and give us an experience of hope and, and faith to take the next step. Now, how this applies to Judges and Deborah's story, you're probably wondering, great. You know, I once read that the biblical narrative is actually... Uh, more a story than it is a biography. I mean, as much as a, a narrative a memory as it is a kind of a biography. We See, we think that um, the Bible's reporting events to us, you know? It's relaying information, telling us how to live our lives, what to do next, right? But the reality is the Bible is first and foremost a story. It was compiled, remembered, written down over thousands of years. This is Judges 5, actually, is, they say next to Job, the oldest story in the Bible, the oldest poem in the Bible. And that was several thousand years ago that this story was written down and told. It's as much a product of experience, I'm sorry, memory as it is experience, like just remembering what happened. And, and so we're invited to live a life filled with rich experiences, but importantly, attentive remembrance. That's why Jesus says at the very end of his life, he's breaking bread with his disciples you know, the Last Supper, what does he say? Whenever you do this, remember me. We're invited to attentive remembrance. And so today, uh, as we come to the story of Deborah, which is one of Israel's great leaders, we find that this story is told to us with precisely that in mind. And here's what I mean by that. Judges 4 and 5, as set alongside of each other, they're actually mirrors of the same story. We read part of chapter 4. If you were to read chapter 5, which we'll get into just a little bit, we're kind of challenged to live these, with these two perspectives. Chapter 4, which is the experience of this, of this story of, of Deborah, and then chapter 5, which is the remembrance of it, looking back on it. And if we put those two together, we'll actually learn 
how to live the life of faith that we're being called to. So what I want to do is not try and teach the whole thing, but really consider through the lens of a couple of the characters, Barack and Deborah, how we can live a deeper life of faith with those two perspectives, experience and remembrance. Okay, and I'll, I'll kind of dive us into that. Um, and we're going to look at first Deborah, then Barack, and actually Deborah the whole time. But, um, and then there's jail in your bulletin. I just ran out of time. Those that know the story of jail are going to think I'm just avoiding jail. She's, this is a really tough moment in the story. I think as I got into it, another sermon for another day, okay? Just, I'll just say that. But we're stopping um, kind of in the middle of chapter four, and then maybe I'll do a TED Talk on jail. I don't know. But <laughs> she's an interesting character as well. So that's what I have to say about that. So first, let's look at Deborah's perspective. And it, it's kind of this perspective on what it means to lead, okay? Um, she really shows us a lot about leadership. And there's at least two views on Deborah's story. There's the, tr- there's the liberal view and the traditional view. The liberal view is this. It insists, basically, that anything a man can do, a woman can do better. That's kind of the liberal view. You see Deborah, this judge. And judge, by the way, is shorthand in that time for uh, the most senior leader in Israel. She's at the very senior leader, the president of the United States, you could say. She's the highest-ranking official in that country. And in that nation. And so that's proof to, in this liberal view that, that injunctions against women in leadership, which have been handed down over generations, and are just socially constructed. They're, they're male patriarchy. I talked about that last week. They're just there to keep women down. The Bible doesn't do that. And, and Deborah's story is an example of that. This is, not, this is not just what did happen, what should happen. Okay? That's the liberal view. And that's often pitted against this traditionalist view. And this traditionalist view looks at this story as an anomaly caused by the abdication of the men of Israel, of whom Barak is sort of a prototype. And the view says that it was always God's idea, God's design, that men should be in the highest level of leadership. Look at Genesis 1 and 2. Adam failed. He was quiet. He failed to show up. He failed to speak. He failed to lead. And in his failure, that's the sin. And and thus, it's inferred in the broader context of the story that, that really it's because of his failure that Deborah steps in. It's sort of an accommodationist view that... God accommodates the story because he had nobody else to work with, okay? That's the traditionalist view. And of course, some of you are laughing because both these views are not only inadequate, but they're, they're fatally and dangerously flawed. We need to remember that Judges 4 and 5 are, like I said, mirror images of each other. They're written to tell us what happened, not what should have happened or what, what, what ought to happen today. And what happened? So Judges 4, 4, and 5, Deborah is prophesying to the people under the, the tree of Deborah. And why? Well, Judges 5, 6 to 9 tells us. And I'm, this is where I'm going to pick up the story. I'm going to read to you this. So if you have your Bible open to Judges, I'm going to read just chapters five, chapter 5, verses 6 to 9. Okay? This kind of narrates why Deborah steps in. So in the days of Shamgar, son of Anoth, in the days of Jael, the highways were abandoned. Travelers took to the winding paths. Villagers in Israel would not fight. They held back until I, Deborah, arose, until I arose, a mother in Israel. God chose new leaders when war came to the city gates, but not a shield or spear was seen among 40,000 in Israel. My heart is with Israel's princes, with the willing volunteers among the people. Praise the Lord. So maybe you heard it there. Uh, there's, there's actually a couple important leadership lessons here that she teaches. The first is this. Deborah is clearly called to lead. There, there's nothing to read between the lines here. There's, there's Deborah, whether she led because of the failure of men in the time or because women were actually more capable and called as leaders, it actually, that's not the point. Deborah led because there's this huge gap 
that existed in Israel. It says uh, 40,000 people, not a single person, man or woman, when war came to the city gates, stood and said no. And so Deborah arose when war came to the gates. She was alone amongst Israel. Deborah alone provided leadership in a time when leadership was not only absent but desperately needed. And so Deborah is clearly and unambiguously called into service as a judge. She led, and her leadership is effective. Here's what I'll say, because she identified a need for it. She saw a need, and she responded to that need. If she didn't respond, nobody would. That's kind of what she's saying. So much like the prophet Isaiah, who comes well after her, when God looks at the people and says, who's going to go for us? Who's going to speak? Remember what Isaiah says? Here I am. (laughs) He's the only one, and he did. And and so leadership looks like that. It it looks like stepping in, stepping up, being courageous, saying, I'll go. I don't know if I have everything it takes. I don't know if I'm the right person. I don't know if I'm supposed to, but nobody else will, and so I will. Stepping into the gap, that's it. Okay, that's the first lesson. Here's the second lesson. Pay attention to what's going on behind the curtain here. Not necessarily between the lines, but behind the curtain. Her willingness to step into leadership stems from her confidence in God. So that at the end of that little section I read, what does she say? My heart's with Israel's princes, all the willing volunteers in Israel. Praise the Lord. And if you read the rest of the story, she says basically that, that God's choosing new leaders, which is to say that God was calling people, but they wouldn't respond. And yet she, she says when God calls her, it's all about praising. It's God, thank you for calling me. She had a, such a focus on God. In fact, if you read further in chapter 5, God says to her, wake up, Deborah, wake up, wake up and break out in song. She was so uh, intimately in relationship with God and, and knew God's call because when God called, she knew it was the right thing to do. She'd been, she'd been listening to God's voice. Um, so she's like this, God, if I'm, where I, if I'm where God wants me to be, that's all that matters. Uh, she has this deep confidence because she is where God wants her to be, that the enemy will be defeated in that day. It doesn't matter how strong they are. And her confidence isn't in the weapons of war, the 10,000 men, or the might of the men. She has this confidence in God. Praise the Lord. And for this reason, she's able to go where others won't go. Um, not just able to go, but she goes with confidence. So as you, in fact, if you read chapter 5, you're going to notice throughout this beautiful displays of, of what you could call God confidence. She, there's no human boasting. She doesn't boast in her strength, God's strength. Her faithfulness, her faith, God's faithfulness. God's mercy, God's triumph. And there's also this clear sense of awe and joy if you read that chapter. That uh, instead of God doing things unilaterally, see, God could do that, right? God could just destroy Sisera's army without any single person, right? But God instead uses people. In fact, there's this thread that runs throughout not only Judges 5, but the whole story of God. God uses people. And there's a theme of deep joy over that reality that God uses people to fulfill God's purposes. And there are countless stories of that in the Bible. You know, uh, you have the people marching around Jericho, God using people to do just some ridiculous thing. You have the disciples, God using people to start this. (laughs) Countless stories of people, not only in the Bible, but also throughout the history of the church, men as well as women. There's that Patron saint of Bethany, uh, do you know who this is? Dietrich Bonhoeffer? He's our, I call him our patron saint because Richard often talks about him. But I was reading this week, um, you know, this was Holocaust Remembrance Day this week, and, and so I was reading a little bit about Bonhoeffer's story. And when he, he was in the United States before the war, began to sense a call to return to Germany. He was in New York City for what he described as 26 unbearable days. 
in, in 1939. And he wrote in, in his journals during that time. And here's one day, June 26th, 1939. I'll just read you the journal entry. He said, today I read by chance 2 Timothy 4. Do thy diligence to come before winter. That was Paul's petition to Th- Timothy. Timothy is to share in the suffering of the apostle and not be ashamed. Come before winter. Otherwise it might be too late. And that's been on, he says, that's been on my mind all day. It's for us, as, it's, as it is for soldiers who come home on leave from the front, but who, in spite of all their expectations, long to get back to the front again. And then he says this, we cannot get away from it anymore, not because we're necessary, but because we're useful to God. Because simply that's where our life is, and because when we leave our life behind, it destroys us. If we cannot be where we are supposed to be, there's nothing for us. And so he says, God wants to use me, and so he went back to Europe. There's him, there's Mother Teresa, I was reading about her, and she experienced this thing called a a second call, a call within a call, and it was actually on a a train one day. She was a teacher, and she began to hear from, like, hear Jesus' voice, and you know what Jesus said to her? Come be my light, I cannot go alone. That was her call to Calcutta. Uh, And there's countless others, and there's, there's Deborah, stepping into the call wherever and whenever she saw the gap, called by God. In, in confidence in God. So here's the application question for us. Are you willing to do the same thing? Whenever you see a gap, wherever you see a gap, whatever the gap is, and however God's gifted you, are, don't, you don't have to be Deborah or Mother Teresa or Dietrich Bonhoeffer to feel capable or adequate to step into a gap. Remember, we actually remember their lives after they said yes, not before. Uh, we don't remember what Mother Teresa was doing before she said yes to Jesus. We don't really remember what Bonhoeffer was doing before that. We don't know much of what Deborah was doing before that. It's after that. And so don't worry about what you're doing now. Say yes. Step into the gap. Are you being called to a greater boldness in God's, how God's calling you in your life? And uh, a great way of beginning to answer that question is to ask yourself, where's your heart singing right now? So Deborah says in chapter 5, verse 9, my heart is with Israel's princes. Her heart is like a tuning fork and starts to sing around stepping in and leading. And so ask yourself, where is your heart singing around an issue? Could be whether it's an issue of, that troubles you or excites you, whether it's an issue of gender equality or racial justice or youth mentorship or the lonely in your life. It doesn't really matter what the issue is. Whatever the issue, the question for you and for me is, are you stepping in? Is your heart singing, and are you stepping in? Are you taking the step toward the call of God as a leader? In a world desperate for leaders, we need leaders. We need each of you to step in. So that's Deborah's perspective on leadership, okay? Let's move to the second half of this, where I want to look at Barack's perspective. And here we're going to learn a little bit about what it means to live a life of faith, kind of broad brushstroke here. And uh, Jenny read this. Let me just read again, because I think their interactions really... Funny, not funny. Maybe funny. Maybe you find it funny. I don't know. So let me just read this. Judges 4, 6. Start there. So Deborah is sitting under the the palm of Deborah, judging. And then she sent for Barak in verse 6. Son of Abinoim, I can't get the names right, from Kadesh in Naphtali, and said to him, The Lord, the God of Israel, commands you, Go, take with you 10,000 men of, of Naphtali and Zebulun, and lead them up to Mount Tabor. I will lead Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army, with his chariots and his troops to the Kishon River and give them into your hands. And then Barak said to her, If you go with me, I will go. But if you don't go, I won't go. 
And then Deborah says, certainly I'll go, but because of the course you're taking, the honor will not be yours. Uh, I will deliver Sisera into the hands of a woman. And uh, just like with Deborah's story, the, there's that liberal and the traditional view. There's a pessimistic and an optimistic view of, way, of looking at, at Barak's story. So the, here's the pessimistic view. Uh, pessimistic view, view, I think, sees Barak as asking Deborah to go with him and refusing to go because he just lacks, he's timid, he lacks faith, you know? And that makes sense in the way the NIV renders this. I just read from the NIV because it, it says, because of the way you're going about this, refusing to just trust and obey, the honor is not going to be yours. I'm going to give it to a woman. And that woman is, by the way, jail. It just sounds like Brock is, is a coward, right? And so he summons his troops. He prepares the fight. And only after he's, uh, sister has prepared this great war machine of 900 chariots, and then Deborah says, go. <laughs> like, seriously, go. We're going to all die. Does he go? It's only at that point that he shows the faith that he's commended for in Hebrews 11. And then charges down Mount Tabor into the, the jaws of Sisera's army. Um, and that's the pessimistic view. And honestly, I have to say there's something in that reading that makes sense to me. <laughs> like many of us in the room probably react that way when we're, we're challenged to step out in faith. I'm talking about leadership. Where can you step in? And you're like, wow, I don't know if I have what it takes today. You know, I, I, I'm, my life, I don't know if I can do what you're saying. In other words, we tend to approach faith like we approach maybe our financial investments. We evaluate the downside risk of any course of action. And if the pluses outweigh the minuses, we'll, we'll go. But if it's the other way, probably not today. Maybe next year. <laughs> we need assurances. We, need, we, we come with contingencies. We have kind of a strong need to go, know before we'll go, right? And while that's an honest view of how we often approach faith, like I said, uh, it's only one view. There's also this optimistic view that I'd invite us to sort of... Uh, come around Barak with. And that view rests on this kind of nuanced uh, kind of interpretation of, of what happens between Deborah and Barak. In particular, uh, verse 6 of chapter 4, where uh, Deborah says to Barak, the Lord, the God of Israel, commands you, go, take action. Now, in those days, judges not only uh, sat under, like Deborah under this palm and people went up to them to kind of help them make practical decisions, much like judges today would do for wisdom, discernment. They were kind of unbiased parties. But also, this is really important um, for prophetic insight. So judges were the prophets of the day. And so they had words of knowledge. They gave oracles, you know, they they could see the future, you could say, kind of like Gandalf, I guess, you know. And and in that way, remembering that Judges 4 and 5 are mirrors of the same events, and Judges 5 is sort of this memory of the story that happened. We get a hint of what maybe Deborah said to Barak in that interaction when he came up to Deborah's palm tree and said, Deborah, what, what should we do? And here's what she says to him in 5 verse 12, actually through God, arise Barak, take your captive son of Abonim. And this, though it's just easy to write past, like, so what? This in that day is called a song of support in the ancient Near East. Prophets, if you came up to them and said, I need a word of knowledge, they'd give you a song of support. And that's what Deborah does. And it's this initiation. It's, you can read it all over the ancient Near Eastern literature. An initiation into battle. She's initiating him. She's saying, though you're reluctant to go, Barak, like Moses before you, like Gideon will be after you, Samuel as well, and so many other people, God's with you. I assure you of that. I've seen it. God is with you. God's gone before you. God's fighting the battle. God will do it. And because of that, you will prevail. We will prevail. Do not be afraid. 
So that's the first thing we need to remember about Barak and Deborah's interaction. He's afraid 900 chariots would cut through an army of 10,000 men like hot butter. I mean, that's not even a fair fight. But even so, he goes because he gets this word of knowledge from Deborah. And so here's the question. Is your faith flagging in any way? Like, all of us in the room could probably answer yes. Yeah, there's points in my life where my faith is kind of ebbing at one moment or another. And if so, <laughs> where are you going when your faith is flagging? It could be staleness in your marriage, disillusionment with your work tomorrow, broken trust in our political leadership, a diagnosis, a failure, persistent sin. Where are you going to have your faith restored right now? See, Barak goes to Deborah. <laughs> His faith is flagging. He sees this courageous woman who, who has knowledge from God, and he goes to her. It doesn't matter that it's a woman and that women weren't, you know, that's not an issue for him. He needs to know that God is going with him. And so he goes to Deborah to, to receive truth from God and, and hear what God's capable of doing in his life. Are you going to the prophet that God's placed in your life? Man, woman, child, doesn't matter. To receive the confidence and courage that God wants to put into your life. God wants to fill you with confidence and courage, and he's put people around you that have the ability to do that. I had a friend call me this week, and I was nervous for this call because we just began this new sermon series, and so I thought, oh, this is going to be feedback, you know? You know, I said something last week that maybe was not on point, and maybe I've said a few things this week, and I'll get a few calls, but so I was nervous about this call. I have this, this deep fear of criticism, which doesn't mean don't criticize. I just have a fear of it, okay? So, <laughs> uh, but I invite it, and so this friend, we're on the phone, and he began to, I was just waiting for the other shoe to drop, began to tell me a bit of his story, and he's facing some significant health issues in his life, and really, really struggling to hold on to hope. And, and, and his faith is flagging right now. And uh, so I'm on the phone with him, and I just said, well, what, is there anything I can do? I'm not a doctor. I'm not really with you right now. And he just said, Jack, I called you because I wanted you to pray. Honestly, and I wished in that moment I could do more. Like, oh, I'm the guy who prays for you. <laughs> Great, you know. But then I began to read and reflect on this passage, and that invitation from him was literally a song of support, Jack. I need you to tell me, like Barak was told by Deborah, that God is with me, that God is for me, that God is fighting my battle. And that, so we did. <laughs> I got to remind him that he's not alone, that God is with him. And so... God has put people in your lives, like Deborah's, to do the very same thing. Are you going to them? Are you going to the Word of God for that reason, to be renewed and restored? That's the essence of what prayer is. That's the essence of what it means to have a devotional life. That's the essence of faith. And that's the first application point. Here's the second. See, Barak says, if you go, I will go. It seems like a conditional thing. But we need to remember that prophets had a couple of different important roles. So they, they not only gave wisdom, they not only gave sort of prophetic insight, they also mustered and inspired the troops. Uh, and so like they're kind of like a coach. You know, you can see the, the coaches during halftime. We can do this. Second half's coming. You know, we're down by 40. It's okay. You know? so, and they, 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 they have this amazing insight and they can declare the correct time to, uh, the adventation time to begin the battle. Sort of like I said like Gandalf, probably better like Galadriel. Remember that time in The Lord of the Rings, the movie when she has Frodo look into that, that bowl and he can see the future? This is what Deborah is doing with Barak. She's showing him the future. 
She's saying this is the way it's going to go. And so, and in fact, the Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, understands and articulates his second role here. In verse 8 of, of Judges 4, it adds this phrase, which is taken out of our Bibles. But it says, if you go with me, I will go. If you don't go, I won't go, because I don't know the day the Lord will send his angel by my side. I just don't know. I'm not a prophet. You are. I need to know. I want to know the day. And in that way, Barak, his refusal to go alone makes complete sense to me. Because prophets are these, they, their important presence in battle in that day and every day is about uh, providing that insight into what's going on, the larger landscape. In fact, Elijah, who's probably Israel's greatest prophet of all time, in 2 Kings chapter 2, verse 12, he's called Israel's chariot and cavalry because he could go out ahead of the battle and see what's happening. And he could, he could, he could see so many things and then was able to inform that uh, and may help them make decisions. And thus, on the, this is the reading I favor. Barak's desire to take Deborah with him is not disobedience. It's not sort of weak, puny faith. But it's done out of this recognition that Deborah is this godly woman who speaks God's words and possesses God's power over darkness. Sisera is the, the enemy of Israel. is going to destroy the entire nation and the story of God, or he's attempting to. And Deborah has this amazing power to see into that world and, and then declare the truth of what's going to happen. She's like the ancient Near Eastern version of Wonder Woman. I mean, she is amazing. And, and so he'd be a fool to, to go into battle without her. He would be a total fool. And, and so it is. They march together into battle. Brock's leading the army. Deborah's prophesying the word of God. And here's the thing. If you know much about the story of God, if you've read much of it, this theme comes up again and again and again. So God's victory over powers and principalities and the evil that opposes our life and threatens to interfere with us and put an end to the story of God, that victory most often occurs when the people unite, when people come together, use their gifts in cooperation, in collaboration, and work together. That's why, if you read back to the beginning of the story of God, that the Lord says to Adam in Genesis 2, when he sees Adam alone, what does he say? It's not good for Adam, the man, to be alone. He found, he says, it, it, he says it's, it's not good. It's the first thing in the story of God that God finds not good. Everything's been good up to that point. And then he comes to seeing a poor Adam. It's not good. <laughs> it's not good for him to be alone. Then what does he say? I'm going to make a helper suitable for him. Now, that English word helper has just gotten us into all kinds of trouble. Because we think, well, it means somebody who could help me with this task that I could probably do just as well by myself. Right? And so it's created a host of issues in churches as, as well as in the wider culture. You know, things like male headship, female submissiveness, patriarchy. You could argue all the stuff we're dealing with today around gender inequality, sexual abuse, the way we understand marriage, the way we understand men's and women's roles in the world stem from our misunderstanding of this little phrase. I'll send him a helper. I mean, are you with me? Those of you that grew up in the church? Here's the thing. That word, this, it's this Hebrew word, azer. Uh, and it's almost always used in the Bible to describe God. In fact, in, in, in 1 Samuel 7, Israel is defeated by the Philistine army, or I mean, sorry, Israel defeats the Philistine army. Samuel sets up a stone of remembrance. Remember what he calls it? The Ebenezer, which means thus far the Lord has helped us. Thus far and always. God is Israel's Azer. Other times, the same word is used to describe military help, which, which is what it's getting at here such as reinforcements or without which the battle is going to be lost. So Deborah is Brock's Azer, 
help in facing the armies of Sisera, uh, help without which the battle would be lost. To help someone, this is what it means, is to make up with, uh, for which, what's lacking in them, to be their strength. Deborah didn't have the strength to fight this battle alone. He needed the help of, I'm sorry, <laughs> Barak didn't have the strength to fight this battle alone. He needed the help of someone with different gifts and different capacities. And that's the way that word's used throughout the Old Testament. You look at Isaiah 30, Ezekiel 12, Isaiah 13 right here. It does not imply that the, the helper is stronger or, the, or weaker even than the help. This means that the, the latter's strength is inadequate by itself. So Barak could not go alone. He should not go alone. He'd be a fool to do it. And so he says, I won't go unless you go. <laughs> and so here's the application. Real simple. We need each other. We absolutely need each other. Every one of us. Um, Barak needed Deborah. Adam needed Eve. Men need women. The young in the room need the old in the room. The dominant culture people in the room need the minority culture people in the room. The people of, that are richer in the world need the poor in the world. People with great faith need people with little faith. On and on and on and on. We need each other. We absolutely do if we're going to experience and live the full life that God's called us to and the power of God in our lives uh, and experience the victory that God's called us to over sin and darkness. We are inadequate. <laughs> Can we say it? We are inadequate by ourselves. If you haven't come to that point, this is your invitation to today. You are inadequate to save yourself. Which is why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, we are one body, though we are many parts. And then he says inside that frame, in verse 27 of 1 Corinthians 12, seek eagerly or desire the greater gifts. Desire the greater gifts. So here's the question. Do you have a desire? A desire for greater gifts, for God to bring help into your life where there's weakness? I mean, you look at your strengths and your weaknesses. Where are you inadequate? Do you have a desire in the midst of that lack, not for God to fill your lack so you're capable, but for God to bring something or somebody into your life to be a help, to fill you with greater hope, greater faith? See, God does. That's how God designed this world, that we might be each other's help through a body, through a fellowship, through people. There is a room, what I'm trying to say, a room full of azers here, a room full of helpers, people who you may not know that well, that God has designed, called here for a purpose uh, to, to fill you with greater strength, to help us in our battle with cynicism or pride or cancer for some of you or fear and anxiety or addiction or self-condemnation. I mean, whatever battle you are waging right now, there are hundreds of battles that are going on right now in this room and God desires to win those battles. God desires to defeat the enemies of hope and faith, and love, and joy. Uh, and God has brought help into our lives, into this room, to do just that. And so here's the response I want to invite us to this morning. Uh, Barack and Deborah challenge us to desire greater gifts. You know, to, to go into those battles, not alone, but with the help God's given us, uh, that we might be equipped for the mission of God. So will you make room for that help in your life today? By literally, I'm just going to invite you to pray with somebody. We don't do this that often, and some of you came, you're new today, <clears throat> um, and you're, this is like, oh gosh, I'm going to have to actually talk to somebody today. Thank you. <laughs> so I want to invite you to, just in groups of two or three, um, with those around you before we begin singing again, just to take a risk. Share an area in your life where you know you're weak, where you need help, 
or you're, you're facing some sort of battle. Don't have, to be, don't have to share all the details, one thing. And then will you pray with someone next to you around that issue? So just take a minute, kind of back and forth, just share perhaps somebody you don't know, one area you need prayer, and then take a minute to pray with each other.